You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. Welcome back, Tracy. We're recording again. Are you happy? We are. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to nice to be back. Um, in the yo-yo universe of uh, spring weather in, in North America, uh, let's see, we had uh, it's snowed today. 50 degrees. Yeah. 50 degrees start of the week in Chicago. And now um, we're actually under a, a snow advisory for most of the northern part of Illinois, where they're going to be taking inches of it. Um, and we, we haven't been hit by that yet where I am. It's just sort of like a driving rain. Um, so, yeah. Uh, um, fuck you weather. Yeah. That's, that's where we are. It's snowed twice March here March. in the last couple of days. So mm. uh, it is yeah. one of those overnight things. So, again, I woke up this morning uh, a little too early because a certain mm. someone really wanted to go out and oh. got downstairs and pulled the curtain back and saw snow everywhere and went, oh, boy, it snowed. And he was like, oh, boy, it snowed. And he just darted out the door <laughs> right. and right. came right. back covered in it. So snow, snow, snow. I mean, if the weather's going to be off, then, you know, at least you get to kind of cozy up with, you know, your books, your movies, your board games or whatnot. And on the subject of it, I, I feel a little bit like a creeper here, but we do, of course, use video, uh, at least for recording purposes, for kind of queuing off of each other and whatnot. And in the background of our guest up on a high shelf, I th- is that a copy of Azul up there that I'm seeing behind oh, you? Oh, yeah. Um, we've got Azul up there, Carcassonne. Mm-hmm. We've got, we've got uh, Jaipur recommended. Uh, I always wear oh, it, lovely. why we have it. Oh, I'm um, good. But that's, yeah. that's, a, that's an excellent reason to have a game. <laughs> so you are obviously my sort of people. Things aren't entirely in view for, for me here, but we have quite literally hundreds of games um, in Shea Townsend over here. Um, and if now you're wondering, since you've all been plunged in headlong, the voice you're hearing is Emily Tesh, uh, who is an astounding award winner and the World Fantasy Award winner for Best Novella in recent times. And now April 11, shortly after, you'll be hearing this episode when it hits the airwaves, Some Desperate Glory is coming out. So Emily, welcome. Hi, thank you. I'm very glad to be here. All right. So, um, I, yeah, I, I, I'm really curious about... Um, about this book, because um, there's there's always pitches that I get from different publicists and things sort of wanting me to take an interest and to bite on certain stuff. And I read the pitch for some de- desperate glory and I was like, reply. Yes, let's do this. Let's <laughs> let's come together. So, um, all right, let, let's let people in on it. Uh, what is some desperate glory? Some desperate glory is the story of the worst possible person who does not realize she's the worst possible person. Uh, it's a story about a young girl who has been raised uh, as an Avenger, if you like, an Avenger of the murdered world she came from. Uh, in the years before her birth, there was a war between Earth and the aliens so far, so military sci-fi. Uh, the humans lost, the Earth was destroyed. What remains is a, a ragged band of refugees uh, boldly starting again uh, on a, a little space station in the middle of nowhere. And so far, this is a completely normal setup for sort of a, a space opera, a, a humans against all odds. What I wanted to do was make it clear as the story unfolds that the, the point of view character doesn't know what's happening. Uh, and that Gaia Station, where she grew up, is not uh, an outpost of heroes. It is a dangerous uh, fascist cult uh, bent on the destruction of everything that's not like itself and that she has been deeply brainwashed, has been radicalized uh, by people who have only ever sought to use her. 
So it's a bit of a departure for me because before this, I mostly wrote fantasy romance. <laughs> yeah, that just, it seems as if you turned left at Albuquerque, as they would say in the Looney Tunes cartoons there. So I, I have to... Okay, I, I really kind of want to dig into that because one of the classic tropes of military SF, like you said, is the sort of um, humanity organizing itself, whether it's 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 all of us or it's just a fraction of us who remain, against some sort of very large capital letters threat. And in this case, you're sort of interrogating that about how that, as a form of of motivator and as a as a kind of set of stakes, is in and of itself, um, an alarm bell that sort of asks the question of like, what, what, what do people become in these sorts of situations? Well, one of the things I was interested in was the idea of the hero and of heroism. And of course, in a in the fantasy, in the sci-fi milieu, uh, we're constantly dealing with characters who, who are not just protagonists, but are heroes um, who save the day, uh, who defeat evil, um, who, who stand up against the bad guy. Uh, and I found that interesting, and I think that it's often taken for granted that the protagonist is a hero. Um, that there's someone we can look up to or admire or relate to is, is the phrase that one hears. Uh, and what I found interesting to dig into in Some Desperate Glory uh, was, well, what does hero mean? Often it means a person who is violent, but is justified. It's allowed. It's, it's violence for a good reason and in a good cause. It's, it's the, the good man with a gun, if you like. And if that person is violent for a good reason and in a good cause, then that's fine. But in order to have that violence at all, you have to have a theatre of violence. You have to have uh, a pre-existing world where violence is permissible and required and the correct solution to your problems. Um, and that often means setting up a war, a fictional war, an alien war. Um, and... I feel that it is possible to, no, I'm saying that wrong. I feel that one, I wanted to interrogate, well, where does that war come from? Who gets to set the terms of that, that fictional war, that, that assumed threat that exists? Uh, why do we trust it when we're told that there's a war and our hero is the good guy and he's on the good side? Yeah, I think... You know, Patrick, I'm actually kind of thinking about this in relation to a um, bit of a teaser here, but we recorded our Just Us episode for the patrons a couple of days ago. And um, the theme of that episode, for those of you who aren't yet patrons and would like to access these benefits, please go to our Patreon and become a subscriber. Um, but you get secret episodes, as it were, where we talk about other other stuff. Um we were talking about the possibility of reading books together and doing like a little mini book to some. Um, and I suggested the, the, the kick the bucket club, like, like we'll, we'll be able to do this if the authors are dead. Um, and it's less likely that we're going to have reactions that will burn bridges or hurt feelings or, or such. Um, but I do think a lot of the sort of golden age SF, um, a lot of the sort of stuff that might fall in that category of things that we would contemplate on our, on our reading list kind of fall in line with what you're talking about, Emily. Like it, it, this feels like it's a, like it's a Venn diagram of a certain era of our vision of what space fantasy in particular space science fiction does. And also um, the genre itself, like that, that they kind of came into sync together. If you think about the origins of the genre, well, it, go, it goes back further than this, of course, um, but certainly the, the, the pulp sci-fi that, that sort of flourished 
um, in the US, and it is largely in the US, flourished after the Second World War. And uh, mm-hmm. there's a, the anecdote I remember is the, the editor, of, I think it was FNSF, who worked out where the bomb was being built because all the uh, postal addresses for where to send the magazine suddenly changed to the same area. <laughs> um, I've got to look that one up because I, I ought Los to know Alamos. the names and I don't. But uh, I, I remember Alamos. it really struck me that you've got actually this quite small community and they, there is a war in this post-Second World War environment. There was just a war. And for once, it was a war which pretty unequivocally did have good guys and bad guys. I think there, there is no arguing that the, 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 that the Nazis uh, in Germany were evil and doing evil things. Um, and that is, if you like, uh, the, the background of the genre in some ways. Mm-hmm. But then that does get interrogated. I'm, I'm obviously not by any means the first to interrogate that right through the 70s as, as the Vietnam War happens. Uh, you have right. the reaction, you have the questions, you have the forever war. It's a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think there is sort of built into the, the, the science fiction genre is, um, well, the history of the 20th century. And it, it can hardly mm-hmm. not be. They've, they've grown up together. But I think, mm-hmm. it, I think it goes beyond that because you, you end up having these uh, huge heroes and villains in science fiction and then in fantasy, but also in Westerns and then on television sure. in, in other shows. It, 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 it's like, it's like you, you always know who to root for. And then you started having the change to your point, you know, Vietnam, different things. The, the idea of who the hero is and who the villain is started to change and become muddied. And then you start getting the anti-hero, the punishers of the world, right? Yeah, Absolutely. I don't think I've done anything particularly new in interrogating that question. I, th- I think great writers have gone before me in doing that. One of the things I was interested in, in particular in Some Desperate Glory, is character. And it is specifically the story of one person. Um, it's the story of the heroine, Valkyr, Kyr. Because uh, what I was interested in was why a person would give everything to a, a, a cruel and hateful ideology that doesn't love them back. Um, and that's very true for Kia. She, she's uh, fully bought into an ideology that sees her effectively as a walking womb, a mother of future human soldiers. Um, and she hates that role and she hates that purpose and she rebels against it and tries to find her own way to be and her own way to, to fight the war she thinks she was born for. Um, but I was interested in the, the radicalization element. That's what I feel is contemporary, the, the contemporary question uh, in the age of the internet, in the age of social media radicalization um in the age of of so many young people do fall into these echo chambers of ideology and the question is why does it work no absolutely and you know before uh patrick hit record and sort of set us on on this specific discussion together one of the things that you know one of the things patrick always does is he gives the sort of proviso that if if you as our our guest say something that later you sort of regret it can be edited out later because of course the court of the internet exists and that of course led to a little bit of bantering about you know social media and twitter and whatnot and the the latest way in which um twitter has decided to somewhat at random run it Chuck Wendig, for instance, um, literally today, um, which I guess means that it's a day that's ended and why. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it's because of the that, it's because of the, yeah. the court ruling. Uh, the Publisher yeah. Weekly uh, uh, posted that uh, the uh, Hachette versus 
um, the Internet Archive, Internet Archive got a ruling, mm-hmm. got a ruling today. And so that brought everybody out. And again, like to your point, they they went after Chuck. Yeah. And so I think there's a there is a set of technologies that exist, a sort of network of technologies that exist that have made it easier for us to communicate with each other, but also for us to communicate past each other. And for us to establish those kinds of echo chambers, you know, that you're talking about, Emily, and and also because we can curate these spaces for ourselves um, where it's possible for us to, I don't want to follow you, I'm going to block you, I'm going to filter for these keywords, I don't want to see them, I do want to see them. We can kind of craft a version of our reality that feels congruent with what we want reality to be. Right, what we want. I always, I always to refer be. to it as bubbles. I always refer to it as right. bubbles. Yeah. We we create these little yeah. bubbles that we live in, where everybody agrees with us, and then when someone doesn't just doesn't agree, we kick them out of the bubble. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what is a space station but a literal bubble environment? Bubble. Yeah. Particularly, absolutely, yeah. A, a sort of a locked, um, a kind of a locked room, I suppose, a, a hot house. Uh, a, a sort of a, a greenhouse environment in past the station, a, a place where nothing can get in or out, um, mm-hmm. and this sort of poisonous, uh, this poisonous um, culture of ideas sort of springs up from that. And then, sort of one of the first things that happens, the first act of the book, you like, is dedicated to Kier getting out. But the other thing I wanted to do is I didn't want it to be easy. Because I don't think it is easy, actually, for a person to change who they are and everything they've believed. I think it's very, very difficult. Um, especially it's difficult to to be in the wrong and mm-hmm. to admit you've been in the wrong and find somewhere else to be. Uh, so I wanted to take this very unsympathetic character and I wanted to give her the time and the space and the opportunity to change. Um, in some ways, I said my background was in romance. In some ways, I do think it is a kind of romance uh, but the romance is between Kia and the moment when she gets a clue. Uh, it is, if, if you like, I, I do want the, the, the romance effect if you want the reader in the background rooting for the, for the point of view character to realize, yeah, come yeah. on, come on, get it. Um, but in uh, other books I've written, it's been, get it, he's in love with you. Here, get mm. it, they're all lying to you. And that, that's what mm. I wanted to do. We want to see her fall in love with with knowing things for herself and with, with asking yeah. questions for herself. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm going to draw a parallel. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to draw a parallel uh, that might be timely for folks right now, which is The Mandalorian. Mm. So, uh, Star Wars Star Wars has had a lot of ups and downs. Uh, if you if you have watched Clone Wars, if you have watched Rebels, these animated shows, you know more about Mandalorians than people who just started watching The Mandalorian, right? They they didn't have all the back history, but there was a there was a cult, right? So in the Clone Wars, Mandalore is a quote unquote peaceful world. It's being run by people who who don't believe in the way. They don't wear the armor. It's peaceful, blah, 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 blah. The, the, the cult, the people who, who are extremists live on a moon and they're called the Watch or Death Watch. That's, that's the folks who are very extreme and stuff. And so what you're, what you're describing a little bit to me, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing parallels with you. If you grow up on that moon with the watch, with the death watch, and that's the only thing you've ever known. And then you go out and you find out mm-hmm. that it's different. Yeah. Right. This is what it means to so, be a Mandalorian so, is different. Yes. Yes. And then, and then, so you have, you have Mando kind of going out and then he meets Bo-Katan and some other Mandalorians who take their helmets off. And he's like, what? Mm-hmm. You don't take your helmet off. That's, that's not what we do. We, that's not, a, you, you, and so it's like, it's like, it's almost like a kid, you know, growing up in their house and the only input they've had is from their parents and their family. And then they go off to college. And when they go off to college, right. all of Absolutely. those ideals are challenged. Right. And, and it sounds a little bit like that's what you're, you, you've got in this story is that, uh, the main character is, is constantly in this one world where this is the way it is this is what's going on here's the history and then at some point starts to figure out that maybe there's a different story mm-hmm. maybe there's, there's other stuff out there yeah yeah that's that's, that's probably what stuff. i'm going for i, I do think that it's fascinating compelling. stuff uh, like yeah. unpacking uh the the layers of of story that you've been told uh in some ways yep. um a question I ask myself sometimes is, 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 is this a book? Because there, there was a time, right, when as a, uh, a writer, of uh, a lover of, of nerd stuff, of fantasy and science fiction, if you wanted to experience it, it had to be a book. If you wanted the dragon, you needed a book with a dragon in it. But, but that has changed enormously. Obviously, the, the technology of different media and different forms of storytelling has grown by leaps and bounds. And we can have uh, our spaceships on screen, uh, hugely convincingly, where you can have the dragon on screen. So the question I sometimes ask myself is, what is this doing as a book that you couldn't do in another medium? Like, why did I write it? Why did I not try and pitch it as a TV show? And for Keir's story, it was very much that what you can do as a book is you can do that very, very limited perspective where you have mm-hmm. one character and you're stuck in their head and you have to you have to filter things through what they see and what they know and they believe. And on a craft level, I find yeah. that interesting. Um, yeah. the, the very, very limited third person. And you can be within their conversation within themselves in a different way. Like a, famously, uh, when there was an effort to turn, you know, Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream and Electric Sheep into a, um, into, um, a movie and it turned into Blade Runner and all of that, there were like 50,000 different versions of it because, um, oh gosh, what's his face? Who who was director for that? Ridley Scott. Um, Ridley Scott doing Blade Runner. It couldn't quite seem to land on the cut of it that he thought was right. But the original theatrical release had a sort of murky film noir voiceover thing that they had Harrison for doing because they they wanted to use the kind of interior mental experience of Deckard interacting with his world that had been in Dick's book. And they wanted to make sure it made it into the film. But as a film experience, it becomes this very different thing. It's, it's hard to find the original uh, theatrical release with the voiceover, but it can be done if you are, you know, keenly determined and willing to do illegal things. Um, but, you know, you, if, you, if you watch it, the, it's not just that the vibe of the movie feels different because you're getting this film noir narration kind of thing. It's that the movie is trusting you with information in a different way that feels less movie-like, I think, is a way of framing it. Like, most movies don't talk to you in those directive terms. 
And so a book also gives you as a as the, the speaker of the book, as sort of a, a viewpoint narrower for Kier, a chance for us to appreciate the evolution of her thinking. That's the hope anyway. I yeah. think I succeeded. I'm quite proud of the book. I think it's the most ambitious thing I've ever done. Uh, you're right. It's, it's narration that, that, that the power of the voiceover is, is something that's very hard to do in a movie and something that a movie audience doesn't expect. Um, with Kia's story as well, some of the, the challenge of it is uh, she does suck. She's really mm, bad. Yeah. And so you have to, you have to trust the reader uh, to get past that, to read through it. Say, okay, I don't like this character. Where are they going? And mm. uh, I, I do expect the reader to dislike the character. I'd be, I'd be shocked if they did like the character. There's a scene in chapter two where she bullies a small child just for fun. Uh, she's, she's awful. She's terrible. Yeah, she's the worst. Um, <laughs> but I, I enjoy that. I also, um, it's a it's a character type I don't get to see young women play often. Um, the the the, 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 I, anti, I the antihero you, is a male hero usually. Right. The, the, I love that you brought that up because on my list of things to talk to you about is is sort of the. Do you think maybe even particularly as a woman writer that do you think that there's less sort of forgiveness or allowance for a character like here? There's more of an expectation that those behaviors, we can map them onto a male character and those can become part of an arc of redemption and part of an arc of a change. But for women, we don't even want to engage with it in the first place. And we want just the sort of like simplicity of like, well, she's a bitch and to sort of be able to move on and feel, feel that the, the business is done. Yes, I would agree with that. I, I felt that one of the things going into Kira I wanted was to write a redemption arc because I enjoy a redemption arc. And I'll go back to a touchstone actually for seeing it done well, which is um, the children's TV show Avatar The Last Airbender. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, where the My character cabbages. of Prince Zuko. Well done. Yeah, the cabbages. cabbages are never redeemed. Never. It's true. Like, in, fact, in, yeah. fact, in fact, I think the real villain of the show is Ang, who keeps destroying the cabbage merchant, never apologizes. Um, yeah, he mm -hmm. needs the redemption. Yeah. But no, the redemption arc of Prince Zuko, I think, is brilliantly done. It's really thoughtful. It's really considered. It takes its time, which is important. Like It takes the whole three seasons to earn and justify the Zuko who's there in the last episode. Uh, but the thing that caught my interest was that he has a sister who has grown up in the same abusive environment. And it's very clear and explicit that these two children came from an abusive environment um, and faced abusive dynamics all their lives. Uh, but the sister never gets a redemption arc. Never, never even a hint of one. She, she's a tragic figure, I think. Uh, yeah. She's in a fact, bitch she becomes, for two seasons and then more expansively the toxic. Yeah. She, yeah, yeah. she gets worse and worse. There is... I think the, one of the most sort of hard-hitting moments in the show is where um, after Zuko has left, Azula realizes that she wasn't actually special or beloved because her father starts to treat her as the scapegoat. And she mm -hmm. says, you can't treat me like Zuko. But of course, the abusive environment doesn't truly care, even if you were the good one, the golden child. Anyway, I found that interesting and I felt bad for Azula. I thought she deserved a redemption. Um, so if you like, some of the, the roots of Kier comes from rewatching The Last Airbender in 2014, 2015 and thinking, where is it? And, and wh why, why is it the, the male character who gets depth and a chance and hope uh, and the female character just becomes worse and worse? And that's the only acceptable sort of place for the, 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 the female villain is to be more and more awful. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That is sort of frustrating, and it, it's refreshing to to know that that's something that you're you're confronting very consciously in the work of this book. And I feel like this this question is a little bit of a rewind, but I think it's for me it's kind of the the million dollar question of creativity is always sort of why why do people who are creative decide to move to the projects they do when they do. And so you, you led with saying that this is, you know, very much not what you've done before. It's not fantasy and it's not romance, um, except in so far as like, we want to see Kier fall in love with a, a future of her own choosing. Um, but why make that? Sw- I mean, you've, you've done astoundingly, no pun intended, well for yourself uh, as an author of, of fantasy before. But what drew you to say, you know what, military SF, which I think if you were to make like a diagram, a lot of people would say like military SF is way over here, which is like somewhere on the polar opposite end of the nerd universe from fantasy. <laughs> yeah, um, I do feel a little bit guilty. I think I saw one reader saying, oh, I'm so excited. Green, the Green Hollow books, my, my duology of romance, that was so cozy. And I thought, oh, goodness, please don't read this one then. Um, so it is a huge <laughs> departure for me. Like uh, In advance, I feel very sorry to that person in particular. Please read the content warnings before you keep going and just make a sensible decision from there. Uh, the reason why I changed from fantasy romance to military sci-fi, well, I got bored. I get bored very easily. And I... I I see sci-fi fantasy as not really especially separate. For me, they're not. Uh, I'm not a strong enough scientist to write convincing hard sci-fi. I am interested in ideas, but the ideas I'm interested in are what Le Guin called social science fiction. I'm interested in history and in culture and in family and how those things might interact in different possible worlds and different futures. So yes, the jump from romance fantasy to military science fiction didn't seem like a huge departure to me. It was just the pendulum swinging. I was like, all right, I've done this. Now I'm going to do something else. And I already know that the next project after Kia is something quite different again to either of those, um, which I'm sure will confuse everybody. But uh, that's, that's just sort of what I do. I get bored and I think of something else to write. And I think as well with the Green Hollow books, I did feel like I wasn't really stretching my comfort zone, if you like. I I was squarely in what I knew how to write and it was cute and I was happy and I was making myself happy. Um, Mm -hmm. But I finished those and I thought, I wonder if I can do something bigger, much bigger. And then it got much, much bigger than that. And it is really the most ambitious <laughs> thing I've ever written. And uh, I'm going to dial it back a bit as well for the next time. I'm, gonna, I'm going to go somewhere that's not quite as hard to think about, as hard to write. Like so much of Kia's story is so painful, so dark. Uh, please do note the content warnings. Uh, there's a scene in the middle of the book where I had to sort of put it down and stop writing for a few months after I got there because it, it was painful. It hurt. Uh, so it's coming from a very real place, I think quite a powerful place for me. Um, and that, that's also part of creativity, of course, is trying to say things that are real and things that are true, uh, which is not to say that a, a, a romance story is not real and true. I think the, 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 the joy of a love story is one of the truest things out there. But uh, I had other things to say. Yeah, I mean, I think it doesn't make those other stories any less real or true, but it makes them a truth that you needed to speak at a different time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
okay, well, that all of that felt very intellectually stimulating and challenging. And now oh, sorry. I, just, <laughs> I no, apologize. No, 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 completely <laughs> mission accomplished, as it were. So now I now I kind of just want to move on to fun, silly. We feel like picks of the week. Can we do it? Sure. Um, we can do picks of the week. Picks of the week. It's all right. You'll, it, it's. There is no such thing as a wrong pick because, again, this is the truth that you need to speak right now. Um, so, to kind of uh, start us off here, Patrick, do you want to show model model good behavior for for Emily? I can certainly do that. Uh, <laughs> I, I I almost have like two picks because uh, I do oh, want to throw not. out there that I, I feel like I finally found something that Ronan, the new puppy, uh, cannot chew through in in like 10 minutes <laughs> so i you know uh for emily's benefit i i have a new puppy uh he's he's almost two years old and i've had him for six or seven weeks now and i've tried lots of different chews just to kind of distract him when i'm doing stuff like this or i'm in a i work from home so i do you know a lot of zoom meetings and stuff and he has burned through everything i've bought <laughs> Like in an instant, he is just an aggressive chewer. He chews through everything. I got him these Good Belly chews, and okay. he burned through those. But I saw that Good Belly had a had one that's a little bit bigger, and it's got like the folded, rounded, so it looks kind of almost like a bone. Oh, okay. And I got him one of those, and he is struggling with that today to the point where he's brought <laughs> it to me several times during this recording. Like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like he just keeps walking over to me, me and he's like he's like i can't eat this what's going on like and right now he's just kind of sulking over there on the floor with it <laughs> <laughs> and he's just he's just like giving me this look anyway so so that's that's that would kind of be number one um the brand i think again is good belly so there's lots of different chews that's for, the kevlar for reinforced one is it yeah. No, but it's it's one that the the good belly thing is supposed to be that uh, uh, it won't mess them up and it's digestible. Right. 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 So that's that's the whole point behind them. So that that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, a friend uh, recommended an audiobook to me and said that it it had no real redeeming value, but it was just entertaining, <laughs> and then yeah. I would probably enjoy it. It's really short. It's like seven hours long, and it's called NPCs. Okay. And it's by an author named uh, Drew Hayes. And it's if you're not familiar with tabletop games and, and, and video games, NPCs refers to a non-player character. And these are usually the characters that you interact with throughout the game. Uh, if you if you play like a tabletop, it's usually like the innkeeper or, or someone who hands you the quest or, or something mm-hmm. like that. And the, the premise here is that uh, this is... This is, I guess, there's this whole genre that has popped up called lit RPG, hmm. and and one of the one of the tenets is that it, the story is supposed to somehow take place in the game world, or uh, and and like people are supposed to level up, or they're supposed to follow. Like if it's a D and D inspired kind of thing, like a tabletop twenty, it's supposed to have stats and and things like so something like that so so this is there are players sitting at the table playing a module for a a a non-existent game yeah and the the party wipes because they're stupid okay they they eat some mushrooms uh in the forest 
and they don't do checks or anything and they don't know that uh, when they go to the inn and they drink something, they all drink alcohol, the and alcohol interacts with the mushrooms and kills them. So they just, the party wipes. Oh, that's right like there. the most boringest total party kill. Oh, God. And then, and then the story flips to the NPCs who are in the inn, in the tavern, going, oh, shit. <laughs> These people just died right here. What are we going to do? And oh, no. so there's like a, there, there's like a debate. Let's loot them. Let's not loot them. Let's bury them. Let's not bury them. Uh, they come across like a writ from a king and the king has this reputation of being a mad king who kills everybody. Uh, if he finds out that these people died here, he'll, he'll send his warriors to this town to destroy the town. So the NPCs decide to impersonate the party and go to the king. <laughs> To protect oh, that, their town. That, that, that's, that's beautiful. That's, yes. that's, that's, I love comedy. I love it when things are funny. <laughs> it's, it's, under, yeah, it's underrated. Yeah. People don't take comedy no, seriously enough. It's so hard to do well. No. So hard to and, be funny on purpose. And so like like my friend said, there, it's, it's, this is a popcorn thing. This is not like – this is not going to win any awards. This is not uh, anything like that. It was just fun. Right. It's yeah, these four yeah. MP and they, they all decide on like the class that they're going to be. And then they all get it wrong and they end up being different classes by the end of the book. <laughs> OK, because they find out that they actually have different skills than they thought they did. OK. And and so by the end of the book, they and, and then there's this there's the whole like overarching thing that there is a thing happening that's allowing them to be who they are and and kind of work through the game. Meanwhile, the party has rolled new characters. On the tabletop, and okay. are, are now like a competing party against the party of NPCs who are going after stuff and impersonating game. their former selves. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so yeah. so there's this whole thing, and it was very entertaining. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Is and like I said, it's only like seven hours on Audible, so it's right. not it's right. not even a it's not even a heavy lift. So NPCs, Drew Hayes, that's my pick. Nice, nice, Emily. What what would you want to share as a pick? Okay. Um, can I do two as well? Yes, See, I'm sure. in the, I'm in the, I'm in the run up rules? to what, what? publication of a new book, which means that my brain has turned to mush because you just sit there uh, consumed by nerves. And of course, there's nothing you can do. It's much too late to change anything about the book. It's all been finalized for months and you're just waiting for someone to react to it. Uh, and that, that's also not a position for, for reading or experiencing new things. So I've gone for some comfort food at the moment. And okay. uh, I've gone in into a favorite video game or back to a favorite video game. I am playing Animal Crossing again. I know it's been <laughs> oh. years since we were all playing Animal Crossing. It's so nice. It's so soothing. The little <laughs> characters, one loves them. Uh, yeah. And I've been carefully relaying out my village and redecorating my house. And I went and bought the expansion pack, um, the Happy Home Designers, I think it's called. And I got very into the expansion pack because I like to design a little house. Mm -hmm. um, and I am profoundly comforted at this time by Animal Crossing. And if it's been a while for you, if, if the, all your pandemic days were a long time ago um, and you have need of like soothing, tinkly music and maybe to shake some trees and some peaches... <laughs> I could not recommend more. It's still good, guys. It's just it's just still good. It's a video game comfort food. Also, if anyone has apples or oranges on their island, I want them. Thank you. <laughs> okay. All right. So um, and that's one of my picks. 
And then I, I get to do two. And where people can find you, we'll we'll just have you. Uh, okay, give brilliant. Your, your if you, you can all, for, all bring me your apples and oranges, thank you. That's what right, I need. Right, yeah. Um, and then the other thing I went back to is a book I haven't read for many years, which is Victor Hugo Les Miserables. So if you like the the the, the two ends of the um, intellectual challenge scale, um, but the I'm reading it in in English translation because my French is not good, um, and oh, it's so delightful. It's it's a great big brick of a book. I think that the Phantom calls it the brick. It's huge, uh, but actually, it's huge in that nineteenth uh, century novel way, uh, where the author is just delighted to, as it were, give you a TV show at the rate of one episode a week. So the individual chapters are very short and it's really, really long and it just keeps going in this great soap opera that introduces new characters and new places uh, and different kinds of monsters. Les Les Miserables is full of of, of human monsters, of criminals of various kinds, of of cruelty and unkindness of various kinds. But Victor Hugo is uh, really passionately interested in injustice, um, in all the ways that the world can be unfair and horrible and all the ways that a human being who cares can make a difference to that. And it is, um, I find it honestly quite uplifting reading as well. But it's also just a, a delightful soap opera with familiar characters. Um, I was a musical theatre kid once, so, so I know all the mm-hmm. songs from the musical version by heart. Um, mm-hmm. And then the book, the book is, it vastly expands on, on what, what can make it into an hour and a half stage musical. Um, obviously, and there's just so much there and so much to get your teeth into. And uh, the translation I'm reading is very good. Um, Victor Hugo is also a, a pro stylist. I, I like his writing. I, li- I like his all the images of stars and gardens. It's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. So that's, that's, that's what I'm doing to keep myself calm at the moment. A really <laughs> big book and my Animal Crossing Island. And it's keeping me very busy. How about you, Tracy? Nice, nice. Um, I too have a pick that is a book. And uh, a while back, um, I was doing as picks of the week, just in succession, Martha Wells's Murderbot Diaries novellas. And I've since kind of like rewound uh, and realized that I missed a bit because I had not read Network Effect, which is the Murderbot Diaries novel. So there are, um, unless I am quite wrong, seven Murderbot Diaries books in their entirety. Six of them are novellas, and one of them's the novel. And the novel is like fifth in the sequence. Um, Possibly sixth? I don't know. Um, Anyway, it's a bit of a mess. But it's been wonderful to sort of return to Sec Unit as my narrator, um, because in the same way that you were talking about before, Emily, that we get this very close uh, third-person perspective on your character, Kier, we have obviously this extremely tight first person, but deeply realized first person reality of sec unit who by now we know doth protest too much and definitely does care about people and doesn't just find them boring and particularly cares about its people. Um, but I, except, you know, every- except, except if they have a gun because humans shouldn't have guns. Humans should never yeah, have gen- generally It never does. It never ends well. The, of arming yeah. the humans. Yeah. yeah never ends well if a human has a gun. Yeah, their threat assessment and the, their their ability to cope is just really not there for it. Um, so it's been sort of wonderful. It's like returning to someone who I know well, even though I haven't, of course, read Network Effect itself before. And so if you're looking for something that um, 
you know, kind of feels like it's like it's in line with uh, we've been talking about sort of military SF, but military SF that cares about its characters and that's sort of interrogating the the circumstances of their situation in a different way. Um, certainly, if you're if you're listening to this and you're having to wait another week before your pre-ordered copy of Some Desperate Glory comes in, you could do a whole lot worse than reading Network Effect uh, by Martha Wells. I, I, I'd I like to see some sort of uh, production of the soap operas that that, that are referenced watches. by Sec yes. Unit. Yeah, oh, please. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that would be the most wonderful meta. Like if oh, like oh, if, give if me in addition to selling the options yes. to that, that you could sell the option to like um planetary station or whatever it is, or um yeah. Yeah, like there's so many there's there's like a half a dozen of them that get mentioned on on the regular. And I I want I want Martha to write down just enough of what the like the um the sort of overall arcs of these different series are <laughs> so that if someone ever approaches her with it, she can be like, no, you got to buy the rights for that. And then she can be a bazillionaire. So be yeah. awesome. That'd be awesome. Oof. All right. So it was so wonderful talking to you, Emily. Thank you. And you. All right. Now, we want people to find you, um, not literally like in your physical space. We want them to leave you alone and be very, very pleasant to you. Thank uh, you. We want them to sort of, right, yeah. We want them to find your digital image. Terrifying. In the Thank world. you. Right, yeah. Knocking okay. on the door. Like. Um, the only place I am to be found on social media is Instagram, where I'm Emily Tesh, uh, mm-hmm. all one word. And I do not post very much, but occasionally I find a nice flower outside and I take a photo of it and I post that photo. And occasionally you have a my cat as well. Me- it jumped up in the background. So Instagram cat people. There you go. That's your bait. It's true. Yeah. Uh, there, there are photos of my cat on there as well. Uh, and occasionally my publisher makes me post pictures of my books, which I think is probably fair. Um, and I have a website, uh, emilytesh.net. Uh, and on my website, you can sign up for my newsletter, which I only ever use uh, to send emails saying, by the way, I've got a book coming out and never for anything else. So I'm Brilliant. I'm actually quite quite private, but I hope you will come to visit my Instagram and uh, look at the nice pictures of flowers and also of the pictures of my books. The books are quite good, Fantastic. I think. All right, so we should keep an eye out for some desperate glory coming out April 11. Uh, anywhere books are sold. All right, so thanks very much for being with us. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, it's been wonderful having you. What on earth? Hey. Hey. Oh, oh. Hi, Patrick. Tracy, what are you doing to the bumper? Uh, fortifying it. Duh. This is because we just talked to Keith Amon about defending your lair. And? And I started thinking about that time beyond the trope, tried to take over. Yeah, I... I act cool about that, but I guess it kind of got to me after all. You do realize that building a... what? What is this? It's a palisade. Right. You realize that physical fortifications are not a way of protecting and preserving the podcast into the future, right? I suppose. Oh, oh, what about weapons? You're kidding. You have two Hugo Awards. Those trophies are very pointy and probably excellent for close quarters combat. Oh my God, you're not kidding.
You can't tell me that you don't look at those trophies sometimes and think about how good it would feel to just poke them right into Sean Duke from Skiffy and Fanty, huh? Huh? My therapist says I need to give my worst impulses space to be entertained intellectually but not acted upon. I would totally act on that. But there's a problem. I don't have a Hugo Award trophy. I don't even have one of the tiny stabity nomination pins. Patrick. Patrick. Why are you grabbing me by the collar? Why am I narrating about it? This is audio entertainment, Patrick. Just give the cues. Patrick, I need that Hugo trophy to help you defend our lair. Podcast. But layer podcast, whatever. We need to make sure the listeners know that nominating for the Hugo Awards is a great way to contribute to the SF community and honor content creators they like. Maybe even the functional nerds by nominating them for categories like best fan cast. Please let me go. Oh, sorry. Would you feel better if we also told folks that interested listeners can go to the current Worldcon Facebook page for more information? I cannot actually pronounce that name of that current page, but they're in China. Oh, or they could skip straight to finding the Chengdu Worldcon on the web at en.chengduworldcon.com. You know, you're stronger than I thought you'd be. My neck hurts. <sighs> Walk it off, Hester. Here, here's a hammer. We've got work to do. Let's take a second to talk about Beyond the Trope. If you're looking for another podcast to listen to, we recommend Beyond the Trope. Giles and Michelle have been putting out episodes for a really long time. Not as long as me, but don't hold that against them. They have a lot of great guests, just like we do. And they put out their episodes on Tuesdays, just like we do. They also have a Patreon with a bunch of extra content for backers, which is really cool. They have a Redbubble site where you can buy stuff, also cool. And I just wanted to throw it out there. Beyond the Trope, check them out. I think you'll like them. So there. Mr. Carpiers, you got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. If you've if you've never listened to the podcast, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions, and then oh squirrel! Oh for God's sake, Patrick Louise! <laughs> Are you okay with me recording you today for the purposes of this podcast? <laughs> okay, that's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> when someone comes up to me and says, "Hey, I really love what you do," I'm like. I'm sorry, do you know who I, like, I think you have me confused with someone else. The whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff. My favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. I'm so excited.